Appreciate that, David. You know, like that boy said, I might have trouble with that. He said, now I know what pancakes feel like when they got syrup poured all over them. Because, you know, when me and David are talking, he doesn't say anything nice like that to me. I mean, he's most times making fun of me or something. But, hey, you guys got something real special going on here. And as we were driving through Montgomery, we were here. I started at AP in 2000. And from then, I have continued to be at AP, but we spent nine years here. And the nine years we spent here were were such a blessing to our lives. And I was driving by the zoo and remembering how my wife, who has been such a blessing to my life, who has stuck with us, with me and our family through thick and thin, has, you know, as I was listening to David talk about how yeah, he felt like maybe I had had an influence on some people. I was thinking, well, of all the people that have really encouraged me and had such an influence on my life, my wife has been right there with us the whole time and just bringing us as a family up to the next level. And I remember being over at the zoo and getting off from AP and getting to go over and eat lunch with her at the zoo. And she would have our little kids and I'd go to that zoo and just think this is such an amazing life we've got here get to work in the lord's kingdom get to take lunch off and go to a zoo where i get to see elephants and there was a little baby chimpanzee that had a had a little diaper i remember there was a baby chimpanzee that the kids just loved to see because it wore this little baby diaper and it would crawl around and i just thought this is this is awesome and then we got to interact with some of the finest christian people that we have ever been a part of. And as we come down here and get to all play golf with Dean and Mark and get to eat with David and Carol and their kids and just love, love, love the church of Jesus Christ in this area and cannot express to you the feelings that we have of tenderness and joy when we think of the Christians who are involved in the Lord's church at this place and want to really express to you what a special congregation Delray is. And I travel all over the world, literally, and go to congregations on any number of occasions, just scores of them every single year. And I can honestly say without batting an eye that Delray is one of the strongest, best, most active, most powerful congregations in the Lord's Church that I know. And it thrills me to get to have an invitation to come down and speak to you tonight. You know, every now and then I'll, I'll get something that somebody will send me that is that's rather shocking. And what this father sent to me was, said his son had been chewing on electrical cords and he had to ground him. <laughs> and like I said, that sparked outrage in, in certain places. But said now, currently he is conducting himself properly and so things are going fine at his house. And I guess you probably do know why the person behind the meat counter doesn't tell jokes. Because he's afraid he'll butcher them. I mean, and the, the stakes are just too high for that. And so you probably understand those things. Now, this is tough for some of us because it gets us a little out of our comfort zone. But I'm going to ask you to do it with me. Now, if you don't want to, that's fine. But it will make the point much better. I want you to, in just a minute, I'm going to ask you to, okay, now close your eyes. Close your eyes. And I want you to point to the direction you believe is north. Keep your eyes closed and point to the direction. Now, now point to the direction you believe is north 
And if you don't mind, I'm going to need you to hold your hand there. Now, pointing up does not count. That's, that, that doesn't count. Hold your hand right there and then open your eyes. And I want you to look around at individuals who are holding. Okay, Dean Sanders says here. We have several people say there. Dean's wife says there. Okay, we've got pointing straight that direction. Okay, we've got somebody right there pointing that direction and somebody pointing uh, that direction. Now, how sincerely do you believe? You, you can put your hands down now. How sincerely do you believe you're pointing in the right direction? And see, what I mean by that is, it could be that every single one of us in this auditorium this evening, if you were to ask which direction is north, you in your heart feel as much as possible, as deeply and as fervently and as sincerely as anything you know, that when you're pointing a certain direction, then that direction, when we say that direction's north, you say, yes, that's north, I know I'm pointing north. And you look up, and you're pointing one way, and somebody else who thinks a different way is pointing a different way. And here's what we know. We can't all be right if we're pointing in different directions, can we? Now, let's say you're lost in the middle of a very serious wilderness, and there are no street signs, there are no roads, there are no places that you can go to get a map. You're dropped in the middle of a wilderness, and you need to go north in order to survive. In fact, you absolutely have to go north in order to survive. And it's uh, very cloudy, so you can't look up and see the Big Dipper and see the front two stars that point from the Big Dipper to the North Star. And you don't get to do that. And so you don't know which way is north. But you sit down and you concentrate and you think with all of your heart and soul and mind that when you get up, you'll be aiming in the right direction. You stand up and you start walking and you believe with all your heart it's north. Do north. But it's not. Are you going to survive in a situation when you need to go north and you believe it is with all your heart, but it's not? Well, I think all of us understand the reality that under certain circumstances, we have to know the truth. Not a truth. Not one that we feel like is the truth. No, we need to know the truth. Now, there's something that is interesting when you put the word the on the front of a word. If I ask you to go out to the parking lot and find a car, is that pretty easy to do? Oh, yeah, you go out and find any car. doesn't matter. You can find a car that has uh, all windshield wipers. You can find a car that doesn't have windshield wipers. Find a car that is painted red. Find a car that's painted blue. If I just say find a car, you can bring any car you want to in here. Now, if I then say go out to the parking lot and find the Honda Pilot with 223,512 miles that has a Tennessee license tag that is licensed to Kyle Butt. Do we have a different situation? There's lots of cars in the parking lot. There's one that is the car that belongs to me. Do you know in our society today, it is very common. In fact, it's one of the most common religious ideas that there is no absolute truth. 
In fact, if you have heard Oprah Winfrey talk about what she feels like is the situation as it relates to spiritual matters, she says everyone has their own truth. You live your own truth, I'll live my own truth, and as long as you are living by what you consider to be your truth, then that is all that you need to do to be true to yourself and to be true to the cosmic spiritual situation. Just live your truth. You know, it's a funny thing about incorrect ideas. Many, many times they're self-defeating. They just don't work. Let me show you what I mean by that. There's no absolute truth. Is that true? Do you know it's one of those philosophically self-defeating statements that if it's true, it's not true? Because if a person says there's no absolute truth, then the statement they just made can't be true. Because that would be a statement that's absolutely true. And so when someone says there's no absolute truth, number one, they're false to the reality that if the statement is true, it's false, so it can't be true, so it's obviously false. And number two, they don't live their life like that. Not in any other legitimate circles. Let's ask this question. You, uh, maybe you go, let's say, you know, a lot of times I'll talk to youth. I'll talk to the kids, teenagers, and they go to a youth rally and they find somebody there at the youth rally. You know, it's, let's say this 16-year-old guy finds this 16-year-old girl that he thinks is cute and he decides he wants to get her phone number. And he goes to her and says, hey, can I have your phone number? She says yes. And she rattles off her phone number. And he writes it down. And then later, no, he probably doesn't write it down now. He punches it in his phone. Thank you. Okay, sorry. I mean, I was. he now punches it in his phone. But as she was saying that last digit, he didn't quite hear exactly what she said. So he punched in what he thought she said. But he didn't want to ask her again. And so he punches it in. And he really thought, oh, that's what she said. Punches it in. Now, for a phone number, three, three, four, two, zero, one. What is that? Ten numbers. If you don't put the one. How many of those numbers can you get wrong and still get to the person you're trying to call? Pretty simple. Okay, so he gets nine of the numbers right and with all of his heart he feels like the one that he punched in last was correct and he hits send. But it wasn't the number she told him. And some guy with a gravelly voice named Frank is wanting to know why he's getting a call from an unknown number and he's half mad about it, or more than half. Well, why? He really thought that he had the right number. Do you know that if you want to call somebody on the phone, you can't call a person on the phone unless you have every single number right. And then we're told, yeah, but in stuff like religion, in spiritual things. Well, there's no real absolute truth. It's just different than a phone number. It's different than going north. It's di Is it different? Is that what God says about things? I think if you were to pick up your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 7, and you were to look there in verses 13 and 14. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. You're going to hear Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount one of the most famous, now stick with me, spiritual, religious orations in the history of the universe. In fact, I dare say, we could say, the most famous. Now, what is the topic of discussion here? Religion. 
and or spirituality. So when a person says, yeah, but, you know, religion and spirituality, it's very different than a phone number, than going the north direction. You know, it's something that is kind of shifty, and for you it can be different than for me. Okay, well, let's listen to what Jesus says. Enter by the narrow gate, or way. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. But narrow is, now here we go, narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Now, Jesus Christ in that statement made a very bold and distinct truth statement. There is one way to God, the way, it's narrow, and most people aren't going. Now, Jesus didn't say that with any relish at all. It's a reality. It's a fact. As we watch the life of Jesus, He said that He came to seek and to save the lost. Over in one of Peter's epistles, He said that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It's not as if Jesus is excited about the idea that only a few will choose to be saved, but He's telling you a spiritual reality. Now, he then expounds on what that means. And as you're there in Matthew chapter 7, I want you to look down just a few more verses to where he explains what's going on here. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, Jesus is describing a situation where at the end of time, there are people who are trying to get Jesus to allow them into heaven. And they're going to say, okay, this is in the context of the narrow way and the wide way. And he's going to say there are people who are, who are saying, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name? Does it look like these people were very sincere? Yeah, very sincere. Does it look like they thought they should have gotten in? There's some kind of disconnect. They don't understand it. Lord, hold on. We don't understand what's going on here. We cast out demons in your name. We did many wonderful works in your name. Yeah, but you didn't do what? You didn't do what God asked you to do. Yeah, but we felt real good about it. You didn't do what God asked you to do. Yeah, but we thought it was the right thing to do. You didn't do what God asked you to do. Let me take you to a statement that you all have read many times in your Bibles. And it's rather remarkable, I think, in a lot of ways. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 23. You're going to look in Acts chapter 23, and you're going to look at verse 1. 
And here in Acts chapter 23, verse 1, you're going to see Paul standing up to defend himself as he is looking at the council of the Jewish nation. And he's going to lead off with this statement. Now let me tell you why I think this is rather remarkable. Notice the statement. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Now, I think it's interesting that in the next verse, the high priest commands somebody to smack Paul in the mouth. Because he thinks nobody can do that. Now, I read a, a book by, well, it was a biography of the individual who started Mars Hill Bible School up in Florence, Alabama. And T.B. Laramore was this guy's name. And as I understood it, he had one of the most profound impacts on that area of the nation and for hundreds of miles around because of his amazing ability to preach and his enthusiasm for evangelism, etc. And if you go up there, there are congregations lots of times within three miles or four miles or five miles. And you wonder, it's, there are more congregations in the North Alabama area per square whatever than anywhere else in the nation. And I asked around, I said, you know, why, why is this? And here's what I found. Now, this was just colloquially, this is what I was told, that T.B. Laramore did not believe in located preaching, that a preacher should stay anywhere for more than three to five years. And so people would come to be trained by T.B. Laramore, and they would go out and they would start a congregation, and because they respected and thought his opinion mattered so much, they would then move three miles away three years later and start another then they would move three miles away three years later and start another one. They just started them all over the place there in North Alabama. Now, I read his autobiography. It was his autobiography. And here's what he said. I read it and could not believe he made this statement. He said, I've never done anything in my life that went against my conscience. When I read that, I thought, you are a liar. That's not true. You lie. I mean, if he was lying, then that would certainly go against his conscience, though. And I, I don't, I mean, honestly, said it with a straight pen. I would say faith, but I don't know what his face looked like when he said it. Could you say, I've never done anything against my conscience? Man, when I read that, I thought, these people are on the next level. Because there's no way I can say I've ever, I've never done anything against my conscience. Do you hear what Paul's saying? If I thought it was the right thing to do, I have done it in every instance until the day I'm standing right here. Now, let's just look at some of the things he did. Ah, uh, He thought that he needed to do many things, the text says, against the church. And he would literally go into people's houses and drag the fathers and mothers away from their children. And when they were tried at the council, he would cast his vote against them so that they would be killed. 
And with a good conscience, he would rip Christian homes apart and be glad that the mom had just been killed because of her Christianity and the kids now in his mind would not be led away from Old Testament Judaism and he was doing the Lord a favor. Can you imagine the mindset that it would take to think that ripping a dad away from a family and putting him in front of a council and voting for him to be killed and when he's killed, you're excited about it? The mindset that that would take to think you're doing that in good conscience? And Paul said, I was. And then he, well, he comes in contact with a, a challenge to his understanding of spiritual things. He's been given carte blanche, blank check. Hey, you go into the city and if you find any Christians, you drag them and you kill them and do whatever you have to do because we want this Christianity thing stomped out. And he's on the road to Damascus. And on this road, he looks up and sees a bright light and he hears a voice that says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, do you know what that statement means, kick against the goads? Now, I grew up with cows. And as we would try to get cows into a head chute, every year you would need to give them shots and things, and there's this narrow head chute that you try to get them in, and then when their head goes in, you close the thing around their neck so they can't pull their head out, and then you give them the shots and stuff. But lots of cows realize that this looks like entrapment of some sort, and they don't want to go. And so they would start backing up in the little place where you were trying to shoo them into the head chute. And you would need something to encourage them to go forward. Now, if you were old school, like we used to, you would have like a, a tomato steak that had a little bit of a sharp end on it. And you would poke them just a little bit. Now, we, we graduated to the, the electric shock stick which me and my brothers felt like we needed to know how that felt, or at least our brothers needed to know how that felt, so we would shock each other with that periodically. But as the cow is moving forward, you shock them with a little shock stick if they're not going. But like those goads, that word goad right there is an ox goad that was something that would be almost like a, a closet dowel wooden rod that was sharpened on the end. Now, it wasn't designed to hurt the cow unless it kicked it. You know, they would easily poke the cow with this thing. But if the cow got mad and kicked back, well, you know how hard cows can kick. I mean, they can literally kill you if they hit you in the wrong place with a good, strong kick. But if they kick a pointy stick, guess what they don't want to do next time? It's a training device to make them go forward and learn not to kick behind them because I've got something that when you kick, it will hurt you very badly. And so Jesus says to Paul, hey... Isn't it hard for you to kick against those pointy sticks that every time you kick against them, it causes the back of your heel to bleed? That's what it would do to a cow if they kicked the thing. And he says, who are you, Lord? And Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And it's at that point that Paul has a paradigm shift. And he realizes, I've been wrong, and I need to change. 
But do you know before he met Jesus, if you were to ask him and look him in the eye and said, are you doing God's will by ripping Christian families apart and having the parents killed in front of the kids? Are you doing God's will? He said, absolutely. No question. I'm doing what God wants me to do. But you were wrong. You see, when you come in contact with Jesus and you see what He teaches and says, it alters the way you view truth. And the way you view truth now is not, hey, I thought I was doing right, and I still think I'm doing right, so that should be good enough. The way you view truth when you come in contact with Jesus is this is truth. Well, let's look at that. You go to John chapter 14. And in John chapter 14, you hear Jesus trying to reassure His disciples and His apostles. It's there again, one of the most famous passages about religion and ultimate salvation in the history of Bible writing. You've got there in John chapter 14, you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it weren't so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, then surely I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Well, of course, his apostles question what's going on there in John chapter 14, and they're wondering, well, where's Jesus going? And Philip says to him, Lord, we don't know the way that you're going. And Jesus says, have you been with me so long, Philip, that you don't understand what I'm saying? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do you know when you make a definitive statement, you incidentally and without uh, without fail, and it's impossible not to offend every person who doesn't view things that way or think like that. And here's what I mean by that. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. Do you know what He's saying? That if you try to get to the Father through any other way, it's impossible to do. You cannot do it. You know, right now there are 1.3 billion Muslims in the world who say we are going to Allah the Creator by way of the teachings of Muhammad and by way of the writings of the Quran. We feel like Jesus was a very good prophet. We feel like he was an excellent man. But they will explain to you that they do not think He was crucified at all and He certainly didn't rise from the dead and He's certainly not the second, third person of the Godhead because there is one God and if you start dividing God up into God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, then you have divided the one God and Jesus can't be God because the Father's God. And yet... In John chapter 8, Jesus said to those Pharisees who were saying the same things as the Muslim says today, no, Jesus can't be God. You remember what Jesus said to those Pharisees who were denying His deity? Unless you believe that I am He, you will all 
die in your sin. You see, for some reason, many people think that, oh, you got to have a right phone number. And yeah, if you want to go north, you got to have a compass that'll point you that way. But when it comes to the most important aspect of anybody's life, their spiritual condition and how you get to eternity, that's your own truth. You know, you could take this into a study of worship, which we won't do. I'll just use this as an illustration. But when you go to John chapter 4, verse 24, and the Bible says there when Jesus is talking about the people that God is seeking to worship Him, and He's talking to that lady who has come to the well, and she is wanting to know if He's the Messiah, and He says that, that there is coming a time when it doesn't matter if you worship in Jerusalem or if you worship on this mountain or if you worship in... You know, the implication there is if you worship in Montgomery, Alabama, or Columbia, Tennessee, it doesn't matter where you're worshiping, doesn't matter what building you're worshiping in, God is seeking people to worship Him, and they must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Now, here's what that means. It's very simple. In spirit means if you're saying, I love the Lord Messiah deep down in my heart, you're thinking about the Lord Messiah and not a chicken sandwich from Popeye's. You're with your spirit thinking about what you're saying. Now, how many times have we been taking that Lord's Supper and not thinking a thing about the sacrifice of Christ on that cross? How many times have we been praying and we hear amen and realize, I didn't hear one thing about that prayer. I was trying to line up what I'm going to do tomorrow. Now, here's what the statement is simply saying. When we worship God in spirit, that means when we say praise God, the Lord, ye heavens adore Him. We're thinking about praising the Lord, the heavens adore Him. Now, when we say in truth, remember what Jesus said in John chapter 17, verse 17. He said, sanctify them by truth. Your word is truth. So all that simply means is that you put your heart in it and you do it according to what the Bible says. It's that simple. Worship God in spirit and in truth. I remember I was at a youth rally one time and I was talking to a bunch of kids, uh, teenagers, you know, 15 to 18 or so, and I laid that principle down and we discussed that worshiping God in spirit and in truth. And I had a couple of young ladies come up to me afterward and they said, no, you're just not right about that. Well, I said, what do you mean I'm not right about that? They said, well, God should be happy with anything that you give Him sincerely. And I said, you mean you think that God should just take anything that, that you give Him and it doesn't matter if He's asked you for something different or whatever? They said, yeah, as long as you're sincere in your heart, then that is real worship and that's what God will accept. I said, okay, now let's just look at that. I said, if God says that He wants you to take the Lord's Supper with unleavened bread and grape juice and you decide you want a steak and Coke, would that be all right if you're sincere about that? They said, absolutely positive. I said... So if you come on a Sunday morning and decide you want to sacrifice a goat to God and you're very sincere about it, do you believe that God would and should accept that? And they said, yeah, if you're sincere about it, then God should accept that because deep in your heart, that's how you feel about it. And however you feel about it is what makes it right or wrong. Is that what Paul said in Acts chapter 23, verse 1? I lived in all good conscience 
before God to this day. And yet, when I came in contact with the way, the truth, and the life, that changed everything about the way I perceived truth. And I realized that what I thought was true wasn't. And when what you think is true is not, and there is one truth, then you either change your life and you follow that truth or you continue to live a, a lie. Now, let me show you a story that I think really illustrates this probably as well as any in the Bible. I want you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings. Oh, let's see where that is. 1 Kings chapter 13. It's a very sad story to me. Every time I read it, I think, oh, this is tough. So, King Saul's the first king of Israel. King David's the second king of the United Kingdom of Israel. you got all the tribes together, all 12 of them. King Solomon is the third king of the United Nation of Israel. And yet Solomon marries a bunch of women that pull him away from his worshiping of the one Jehovah God. And so God then allows the kingdom of Israel to be split into two. And Rehoboam, now this gets kind of complicated with the wordage, but work with me here. Rehoboam, Solomon's son, takes Benjamin and Judah in southern Israel. And Jeroboam, who was the captain of Solomon's army, takes the ten northern tribes. And Jeroboam decides that he's going to start a new worship and he builds altars up there and he builds two golden calves, one in Dan, one in Bethel, and alters the worship of the ten tribes of Israel. So God then sends a prophet to speak to Jeroboam at this new altar that he's built. He shouldn't have built the altar. They should still be worshiping where the temple is, but they're no longer worshiping where the temple is. So this prophet is told to go speak against this altar. But he's given a simple rule. Here's what the text says. The text says that God tells him, notice, here we go, Verse 1 of chapter 13 of 1 Kings. And behold, a man of God went from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord and to Jeroboam. And Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. Then he cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a child, Josiah by name. Now what's interesting about this, Josiah doesn't live till several decades later. He's prophesying that this king is going to do some things to this altar. So, notice this. So he cries out against the altar. Verse 4, So it came to pass, when King Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God, who cried out against the altar in Bethel, that he stretched out his hand from the altar to say, arrest him. Okay, so here's the picture. Jeroboam, and incidentally, is Jeroboam from the tribe of Judah? No. I mean, from the tribe of Levi? No. Should he ever be burning incense to God on any altar in any type of Old Testament situation? No. He just made up his whole new religion. He builds his own altar. He decides he's going to burn incense. The priests were the only ones that could do that. This man of God yells at Jeroboam while he's burning incense and says, you can't do that. And Josiah is going to burn on this altar the bones of the people who are worshiping like this. And Jeroboam turns to stretch out his hand to say arrest that guy. And when he turns to say arrest him, his arm shrivels to unusable. Now, do you think when the king turns to say, arrest him, all eyes are on the king? Absolutely. And when his arm shrivels up, 
Do you think everybody sees what's happening? Okay, this is big news. This is not a sleight of hand. This is not something that was done on a video card graphic program. This is Jeroboam's hand shrivels up and it's no longer usable now. Now, notice what happens. The altar also split apart. The ashes poured out from the altar according to the word of God. Then the king answered, verse 6, Please entreat the favor of the Lord that my hand may be restored to me. He can't use his hand. It's totally shriveled up. He begs the prophet, says, hey, will you pray that God will fix my hand? The prophet says, okay. Praise that God will fix his hand. God does. Fixes Jeroboam's hand. You would think, Jeroboam, duh, if the God who can shrivel your hand in a second and then fix it at the word of the prophet doesn't want you doing this stuff, you should change. Jeroboam never changes his lifestyle or religious worship. Never changes it. He comes in contact with the truth and keeps living a lie. Never changes it. But now notice what he says right here. Verse 6. So the man of God entreated the Lord. The king's hand was restored. Verse 7. Then the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself and I'll give you a reward. But the man of God said to the king, If you were to give me half of your house, I wouldn't go in with you, nor would I eat bread nor drink water in this place, for it's been commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall not eat bread, nor shall drink water, nor return by the same way you came. So he went another way, and he didn't return by the way he came to Bethany. Jeroboam says, hey man, that, that was awesome. I'll tell you what, why don't you come, I'll fix you a big meal at the palace. You know, we'll probably we'll have steak and everything you can possibly imagine. You've got to be hungry. You've got to be tired from coming all the way up here. Come to my palace, we'll have a big meal. Guy says, can't do it. Says, can't do it because I had one command from God, and God said, When you go up and you deliver this message, do not return the same way you came. Don't eat bread or drink water. Okay. So there are a couple of young guys who are at the situation. They come home to their dad, who was a prophet. And they said, Dad, dad, I'm gonna have to paraphrase a little bit. We're not gonna get to read it all. They say, Dad, you'll never believe what happened. We were at the altar and we saw this prophet of God. You should have seen him. Jeroboam was sacrificing, was burning incense. This prophet of God screamed against the altar and then Jeroboam went to arrest him and his hand shriveled up. The king then begged the guy for his hand to be unshriveled and his hand was unshriveled and we've never seen anything like it. And the dad said, oh, hey, hey go saddle my donkey. I want to go talk to this guy. So he saddles his donkey. He goes and finds the man who is, the Bible just says, a man of God. You don't ever even read his name. We don't even know who this prophet was. Goes and finds him. Now watch this. Verse 17. He says, come on back to my house. I need to give you something to eat. The man of God who spoke against the altar says, for I've been told by the word of God, you shall not eat bread nor drink water there nor return by the way that you came. He tells this to the old guy. Now here's what the old guy says. He said, I too am a prophet. As are you, and an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with you to your house, that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. He says, Love to come back and eat with you, but I can't. God said, Don't. Oh, God says, Oh, I knew you had that message. And really, an angel came to me and said, You could. Young guy says, Oh, guess it's all right then goes back, sits down at the table, and eats with the old prophet and his son. Now, notice what happens. 
Verse 20. Now it happened as they sat at the table that the word of the Lord came to the old prophet who had been who had brought him back. To the, that guy. And he cried out to the man of God who came from Judah saying, Thus says the Lord, because you disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the commandment which the Lord your God has commanded you. But you came back, you ate bread, you drank water in the place of which the Lord told you not to eat bread and not to drink water. Your corpse shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. Yeah, but this guy told me I could. Doesn't matter. That guy's not God. Yeah, but on TV I listened to this preacher who said it doesn't matter. That preacher's not God. Yeah, but I really felt like I was doing the right thing. I even told Jeroboam that I couldn't go to his house. I mean, Jeroboam was going to give me a half of his kingdom. And I said, I'm not going with you. But then I thought it was different. It wasn't different because God gave you a command. And it doesn't matter if you thought it came from an angel. It doesn't matter if you thought this prophet was telling you the truth. He lied. And the scene that plays out next is so very interesting to me. Verse 23, so it was, after he'd eaten bread and he had drunk, he sent on the donkey for him, the prophet whom he had brought back. So when he was gone, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his corpse was thrown on the road, and the donkey stood by it. The lion also stood by the corpse. He gets on this donkey, he goes on his way back home. A lion comes by, kills him. Generally speaking, what's a lion kill a person for? To eat them. What's the first thing a donkey does when he sees a lion? He runs. Okay, you literally have the body, the corpse of the man of God laying on the road, not eaten, just killed. You have the donkey standing by the corpse of the man and the lion standing by the donkey. Why in the world do you think God would do that? He's letting people see this is a message. That even though this prophet from God came to speak against Jeroboam, the wicked king who started a new religion, he didn't do what I asked him either. And when you don't do what God asks you to do, and I think it's also very interesting as the story plays out, the old prophet Looks like he's guilt-stricken. He goes and he gets the body of that young prophet and he says, when I die, I want you to bury me in that tomb because everything this prophet said is going to come to pass. Did that man of God think that he was doing what God wanted him to do? Yes. Was he sincere? Absolutely. Was Paul sincere when he was killing Christians? Yes, he was. Is sincerity the way you measure truth? It never has been. Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. Many people go by it. But narrow is the gate. And difficult is the way. And there are few who find it. Absolute truth is recognizing that what God says is right. Let's do what God says. Appreciate you being here tonight. Thank you for the invitation.